all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 196 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the ARP 290 Pair of Galaxies sequel! Sequel episode of the SLS cast because I'm sure you who follow us regularly will note that I said that last week was the ARP 290 Galaxies episode. But yes, it's a pair of galaxies. Last week I discussed IC 195 as its own galaxy, but it's a pair of galaxies that make up ARP 290 along with IC 195. 96. And with that little bit of sequel-esque ARP 290 Galaxy information, I am still Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee... Unfortunately, Tim. Didn't. So, are you are you sure you're reading the ARP Galaxy correct? Are you sure it's not the AARP Galaxy where the old folks from Cocoon end up? <laughs> uh, maybe that's why it's called ARP, but they are only using one A, and then the R and the P are lowercase. So, I don't know. Guess we'll have to get a hold of Wilfred Brimley and ask him. <laughs> is he still alive? Um, he is. Or maybe Don Amici, since Don Amici would have theoretically passed on to that plane by now, since he has passed away. And Jessica Tandy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Do, do they all have, like, share, like, a, a single mind? Are they single-minded together? Not single-minded. I don't know. You know who we could ask, who would really and truly know, would be Brian Dennehy, because he was one of the aliens uh, from that universe uh, that is Cocoon. Maybe even Steve Gutenberg, because... Why not? Oh, that's Steve Gutenberg. <laughs> what is he? What has he been up to lately? <laughs> he's just really um, trying to get Cocoon Three off the ground. Yeah, I'm thinking he's got to be either doing Cocoon Three or a Police Academy revival. Yeah. I mean, because sequels and reboots are all the rage, right? That's what everybody <laughs> wants to see. Gutenberg is stuck. He's locked himself in a basement for the past 25, 27 years. He thinks Jessica Tandy and Dom Amici both are still alive and kicking it. They're making movies all the time. Maybe, maybe he's Gutenberg. working with Jessica Tandy on a sequel to Fried Green Tomatoes that is also a crossover with batteries not included. What would you call them? <laughs> Fried, ba- fried fried green batteries not included. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, so, no, you know what? I got to give it to Steven Gutenberg, though, because Homeboy saw the writing on the wall with the Police Academy movies and just said, nope, I'm out. And he's never looked back. After and the I sequel, after that. the second or the third, I forget. I think he made it all the way to four. I want to say he made it all the way to four and then was like, guys, come on. And then out he went. But, um, no, I'm sure he's probably done some tv and smaller movie roles and stuff like that maybe stage and stuff but i'd like to see him again i was always a big steve gutenberg fan i wonder i don't think he's really even done tv either he just kind of i guess we can go to the old imdb or wikipedia or whatever here is that how you're like in school like do you make that whenever you're trying to figure something out did you do you just go well, that's my um that that is my thinking um, 
Your no, that, segue music? The, your, the, yeah, it's the, it's, the, it's the on hold music, right? You know, We here at the SLS cast value your patronage and want you to continue listening. Right? So that, that's what I'm doing when I'm, you know, so it's typing out and everything. You don't have to hear me just going. Wasn't that a rendition of MASH? Of the MASH theme song? No, the MASH theme song would be. Do, 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 painless. Suicide is painless unless you cut off your arm. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So let's see, what has he been doing? So, um, let's see, let's see here. Uh, in 2014, in 2014, he was in Affluenza, uh, as Philip Miller. He, he was, was in it or had it? Um, are you on, are you on WebMD? It. His WebMD yes, page, and he was also in uh, the miniseries Sons of Liberty. He played Jack Bonner, and interestingly, I guess he decided to jump on the ridiculousness movie hype train because last year in Lavalanchula, he played Cotton West, and this year Cotton he West. Has a, Cotton West. Cotton oh, I'm sorry. West. No, I'm sorry. I mispronounced that. I apologize. Colton. Colton West. <laughs> That's a bold move, Colton. Let's see if it pays off for him. I know it's a bold move, Cotton, but see, I mispronounced it twice now. Uh, yes, Colton West, Lavalanchula, uh, which, and, and apparently it's in the same universe as Sharknado because this year he has a cameo as Colton West in Sharknado The Fourth Awakens. And finally, he is also doing two lava, two lantula. That's <laughs> Colton West. So, <laughs> still a better title than Too Fast, Too Furious. Number Too oh Fast, God. Number Too Furious. Lava spiders. I just wow, that's that's awesome. Oh. So that's what Gutenberg's been up to in the last few years. Speaking of Too Fast, Too Furious, I had some crazy Mexican food yesterday, and it came out too fast and. <laughs> A little too ferocious, but uh, hey, yeah. So apparently, it's not uh, it's not fall yet, even though it feels like fall, and the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting longer. It does not feel like fall over here, sir. It is currently about ninety degrees outside. Really? Yes. Here we are on the sixth of September, day after Labor Day for us. We took the Labor Day holiday and enjoyed ourselves. Unfortunately. Um, Unlike the people at ITT who were told on Friday, hey, you guys take Tuesday off too because you've been working hard and we care about you. Only to wake up today and go, hey, you're fired, everybody. Um, because that's what ITT did. They decided to go out of business today. On the flip side, you don't have to watch any of those commercials now. You're watching your Judge Judy and you're interrupted by... Oh, I had a career that wasn't going anywhere. And then I went to ITT Tech, and now I'm working for the government. <laughs> and now I have no career, no job. <laughs> and no money. And no money. <laughs> oh, I have no money in three debt. <laughs> All I've got is a freezer full of Labor Day wieners, 25 packs of buns, and a vat of mayo. Wow. I like how you specified vat of mayo. Well, I mean, you can only get mayo these days in a in a you can't get a it's like a jar of mayo or a vat of mayo. I can imagine you can go into a bigger box store like Sam's Club or whatever and get a vat of mayo. 
I don't know. Like you in those can, stores, can you, you get it? You can go. A you can go to the old uh, warehouse store, uh, much like the old Costco or the old Sam's Club. And yes, you can buy the Vat Omeo for the people who I guess you know um, are working in some kind of food service or whatever. They will have like. Is it big enough to where you can get inside of it and take a bath? Um, you could definitely get your arm in there. With no trouble. Arm in there with room to spare. I, I saw one back in July, actually, because <laughs> my my dad inadvertently, when we were up in, uh, when we were up visiting my mom and dad up in uh, Washington State, or uh, to clarify, because I call them both dad, my stepdad, um, we were at Costco and he, and, and mom had asked us while we were out, hey, get some mayo um, for the potato salad. And so he's like, okay. And so we were out and at Costco already. So he just goes and grabs, literally, he goes and grabs a vat of fucking mayo. And I'm like, I don't think that's the size that she wants. I think she just wants a regular jar because we're only doing the potato salad once, uh, <laughs> you know. And um, and it was a, and this is not the the mayonnaise only version of potato salad. This was the uh, yellow mustard and mayo combo. And so. Um, He's like, no, no, this is the brand we get and everything. I'm like, maybe, but I don't think she needs that big of a jar. I mean, where are you going to put it once you open it? You don't have enough room in the fridge. He's like, no, I'm telling you. So we get home, and sure enough, she's like, why do you have a jar that's like 600 ounces? And I'm like, I don't know. So we we ended up leaving the receipt there so they they go take it back to Costco, and then we had to go back up to the old Fred Meyer and pick up a regular jar of mayonnaise. <laughs> And there was a pointless story about the vat of mayonnaise. <laughs> anyway, uh, would you like to go ahead and jump into some regular news? Yes, we missed. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> First up, from me, from cubiclane.com, by way of Timothy Wang, Cinemark survivors of the 2012 massacre to pay $700,000. Yes, you heard that right. Cinemark survivors, four survivors of the Aurora massacre, who sued Cinemark for not having taken sufficient security measures, will have to pay court costs. Amount at least $700,000. Dollars. Now, before you get completely outraged and go like, holy shit, how can these poor people who have experienced this tragedy, what the fuck are they doing on the hook for this kind of money? Allow me to read on. In July 2012, student James Egan Holmes, dressed up as Joker, killed 12 spectators in a Cinemark theater in Denver. Four years later, the legal proceedings brought by some survivors against the theater chain which operated the room has turned to the detriment of the plaintiffs, according to the Los Angeles Times. A first group of victims had launched a suit against Cinemark. However, jurors on the case felt that Cinemark could not foresee the massacre, and the case was dismissed. A second group of 40 plaintiffs launched a second suit against Cinemark, lodged at the federal level. 
In light of the first decision, the judge in charge advised them to accept the financial agreement, $150,000 to be shared, and the promise that security incentives would be improved. If they refused the deal and lost the trial, they would have to pay court costs. Quote, a blind man could have seen the verdict coming, end quote. The negotiations were going fine until one of the victims refused the agreement. A mother, she had lost a child and the baby she was carrying. Only four other complainants followed her. All others desisted. And Cinemark won again. The survivors will have to pay at least 700000 in court costs, calculated the Los Angeles Times. That is the article. But again, if you'd like to read that for yourself, head over to cubiclane.com. Again, courtesy of Timothy Wang. Cinemark survivors of the 2012 massacre to pay $700,000. What do you think, Tim? Um... I got to agree. Look, I mean, it was a tragedy and I don't know. I think maybe people, you know, the dude should not have been able to easily just go out the exit door and come back in the exit door. But long and the short of it is, I mean, you can't, it's just a little too hard to foresee people, you know, making those kinds of attacks on theaters and stuff. And so while it definitely was a tragedy and I feel bad for these families, they were still offered a sum and in writing Cinemark would be like, look, you know, we are going to have to do these things and we will do these things or we're not abiding by an agreement, which at that point leaves them open for a real lawsuit. So it seems like it would have been a win-win scenario. And yet these people continued on. What do you think there? Do you think that they, I don't want to say necessarily got what they deserve, but I mean, do you think that maybe they should have just listened when the judge said, please take the deal? You know, it's hard for me to say, or really hard for me to put my two cents in, but it's a very sensitive subject matter, you know, especially with what the victims are going through and all that stuff. But I do agree with you in saying that there's only so much a movie theater can do to prevent this stuff from happening. Unless you want to go through metal detectors, unless you want armed security at every entrance, at every exit, at all times... That can't really be done. That I mean, that's unfeasible. I mean, especially since it would probably cost a premium, some kind of like ticket premium, for them to really implement security like that, and, and not only in every th- movie theater, but even half of the movie theaters. So if you want that security, you're going to have to pay for it. And there has to be a demand there, and I don't think a lot of us are really demanding for more security at, at movie theaters. Um, but on the other hand, with... The lawsuit now facing the victims, I I forgot if you mentioned this or not, but I remember reading somewhere that Cinemark was claiming that this was bad for business, like like this ruined business for them, and the victims slandered towards Cinemark, or stuff that like the victims said about Cinemark was deemed slander to them, and that it kept business from booming, I guess. Is that, did you hear anything about that? I did not. I did not. And that is not a part of this of the article that I read but it might have been part of the LA Times article. Yeah, like I read something about that and I kind of think that's bullshit. I think it's been a really crappy summer. Having, I mean, so. regardless his fault, her fault, nobody's fault. You can't predict these kinds of things and it sucks for everybody absolutely. But at the end of the day, I think if something terrible like people getting killed in your theater, that's going to just hurt business. That's going to hurt your business and it just um, you're just going to have to deal with it. I don't think that uh, anything that the victims' families or the victims themselves that survived could have said or done would have been any kind of detrimental 
to their business. That is kind of a ridiculous cop out on Cinemark's part, if that indeed did happen. Yeah, yeah, and and, and again, like I could be wrong about it, but I'm pretty sure I read uh, something like that. But okay, so just remember, the last thirty seconds are pure speculation. We have nothing concrete, so maybe we shouldn't have said anything at all. But at least we are, <laughs> at least we're admitting that it's pure speculation, not to be taken seriously unless it's otherwise confirmed. So we at least have enough journalistic integrity to do that. Yes, 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 yes. All right. So what do you got there, sir? All right. I just want to mention uh, this piece of news real quick. Uh, Deadline dot com. Hugh O'Brien dies. Actor was TV's Wyatt Earp. This is a little article written by Patrick Hypes. From a couple days ago, it says that Hugh O'Brien, who starred on ABC's 1955 to 1961 Western The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, died today at age 91 at his home in Beverly Hills. The news was reported on O'Brien's website for HOBY, or H-O-B-Y, the organization he created to develop young leaders. O'Brien, a Marine Corps instructor during World War II started his career on the stage, leading to a deal at Universal Studios. Then came film and TV roles, including Broken Lance and There's No Business Like Show Business. In 1955, he landed the lead in The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. It aired 229 episodes after premiering on September 6th, 1955, four days before Gunsmoke premiered. After the Wyatt Earp run ended, he guested on several TV series, including Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, and Charlie's Angels. On the big screen, his credits included 1976's The Shootist, John Wayne's final film, 1988's Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, and a cameo in 1994's Wyatt Earp Return to Tombstone. Uh, so R.I.P. Hugh O'Brien, R.I.P. Again, he passed away at the age of 91. If you want to read more about him, do check out the Deadline.com article, Hugh O'Brien Dies, Actor Was TV's Wyatt Earp. Now, this next piece of news is incredibly creepy, and if it's true, if it turns out to be true, maybe slightly irritating especially for those of you who have actually experienced this firsthand i mean those of you who are living in south carolina in this town is experiencing firsthand uh this is the first article that i read that really kind of caught my attention it's a little spooky a little creepy and if you don't like clowns and uh you live in the south carolina area by you know where it's heavily wooded i would just stay out of the woods until at least Maybe a Rob Zombie movie, you know, has has come and passed. But from the LATimes.com, South Carolina children say clowns are trying to lure them into the woods. Uh, this is written by Debbie Baker, and it says that Halloween is still more than a month away, but the haunting is starting already in South Carolina, where children have reported that scary clowns have tried to lure them into a forest. The Greenville County Sheriff's Office said that several reports had come in about the costume characters who have been appearing in the woods behind an apartment building where they try to entice youngsters by showing them large amounts of money. ABC News reported that police wrote in a report that the children believe the, quote, the clowns stay in a house located near a pond at the end of a man-made trail in the woods. In quote, one youngster called police to say that someone was taking photos of kids in the neighborhood. That was followed by another caller reporting that someone in a clown costume was seen coming out of the woods. 
Adults have spotted at least one of the curious creatures. One woman told officers that she was walking to her home when she came across a, quote, large figured clown with a blinking nose standing under a post light near the garbage dumpster area, end quote. According to the police report, she said he waved at her as she passed. And the article goes on from there. God, isn't that creepy? It's absolutely frightening. I couldn't imagine being a youngster. You know, the youngsters. I love how even the LA Times refer to young kids as youngsters in South Carolina. Um, you know, being a kid coming home from playing basketball or baseball or coming home from school late and you just happen to see a clown with gr- glowing eyes, glow-in-the-dark green teeth, and a bright blinking nose just leering at you from the woods and waving and, and like trying to give you money. It's just absolutely frightening. And, you know, for, I mean, in the, in this story has, has been kind of gestating in the media and in the news circuit for a few days now, but this is what gets me. I mean, I think to me, this makes it even creepier because if it is true, it would just be a little fucked up. Not just a little, but very fucked up. Uh, now I'm going to switch over to IndieWire.com for part two of the creepy clown story. Uh, creepy clowns roaming South Carolina. Are they viral marketing for Rob Zombie's new movie, 31? Uh, this is written by Liz Calvario, and it says this. It's been over a week since sightings of creepy clowns have been reported in Greenville and Spartanburg counties in South Carolina. According to the Los Angeles Times, the Greenville County Sheriff's Office said that several reports have been coming in about scary costume uh, characters who have been appearing in the woods and luring in young kids with the money, as you know. But as more sightings are called in, the Reuters article points to a theory that this could be part of a viral marketing campaign for Rob Zombie's new horror film, 31, which was released on September 1st. The movie follows a group of sadistic murderous clowns who torture five carnival workers they kidnap. The sightings were mostly reported a few days before the film's release, yet the studio has yet to comment on the incidents. A resident of Greenville posted a suspicious photo of a bright-colored figure in the woods on Twitter, and while the images has yet to be confirmed, it's pretty terrifying. Whether it is or isn't related to the horror film's release, for now, police are urging parents to be cautious and have officers stepping up to patrols the area. It all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this? Not only is there being creepy sightings of clowns in the woods, are there creepy sightings of clowns in the woods, but this could possibly be a viral marketing campaign for a Rob Zombie movie. It's a little messed up, don't you think? Not for Rob Zombie. But, I mean, even for, like, a studio to be to, to back a, a campaign like this. Not with, not with Rob Zombie's name attached. I mean, I'm sure the people who are freaked out will probably disagree, but everybody else who knows anything about any of the kind of uh, movies that Rob Zombie makes and the way he presents his horror, and even with the way that... Um, he his persona on stage for his music and stuff like that. Nah, that sounds exactly like something Rob Zombie would do. I'm not saying I approve, but it's not surprising to find out that he might be behind something like that. So if you saw one of these clowns, how would you react? I don't know. Um, I'm I'm kind of one of those stupid people who would probably have walked up going, what the fuck is that thing? So... <laughs> 
and maybe lost my life for it. I don't know. <laughs> Matt is the uh, oh, what, what's the what's the poor frump girl in Stranger Things who goes missing and then everybody gives up on her? Barbara, yeah. Barb, Barb. Yeah, you would be the Barb in the story. That's right. Hashtag poor Barb. No. All right. First up from foxnews.com by way of, uh, well, it looks like by way of news.com.au because it doesn't seem to be any original uh, attribution here for it. So, Daniel Craig reportedly offered $150 million for two James Bond films. Yes. Um, basically... He said he was done. He didn't want to do anything. Sony really, 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 really wants to do this uh, with him, despite uh, people like Tom Hiddleston and Idris Elba having been considered and or seriously in the running for it. Um, but apparently a source told Radar that, quote, the studio is desperate to secure the actor's services while they phase in a younger long-term successor, end quote there. But uh, apparently, yes, um, Craig turned down... 137 million for two Bond films. And apparently they have upped the ante to $150 million. Um, you know, at this point, I'd probably just say yes. I, I think I could, I think I could go out on a high note, even if the films don't do so well. I could go out on a high note at $150 million for two more movies. But, uh, last but not least for me, from digitaljournalsmedia.com, by way of, again, no direct attribution. Interesting. Uh, uncharted movie taken off release schedules. Even though June 30th, 2017 was supposed to be the release date of the Uncharted movie, it seems like Sony will postpone it after all. Not surprisingly, since a few directors were changed for the movie, David O. Russell, Neil Berger, and Seth Gordon, namely, and still no one has been cast to play the role of Nathan Drake, the title role. Um... And it, there's a little bit more here, a couple little paragraph blurbs, but blurbs. But the, the simple fact of the matter is, is you know what? Good, because I don't think we are quite ready for an Uncharted movie. I think that given the lexicon and the legacy that is Indiana Jones, I think that Uncharted is great in the video game sphere, and I think it gives that uh, it's got that great storytelling mechanic, and it, and it is kind of an Indiana Jones for the 21st century. But at the same time, not every video game treatment needs to be made into a movie. I'm telling you, you guys, we saw it with Prince of Persia, and I truly believe, despite Michael Fassbender, who is amazing, there's no, doesn't mean he's not a brilliant actor, but even despite Michael Fassbender being attached to Assassin's Creed, I just don't think it's going to do well. And I think when we see just exactly where that lands, um, it, yeah, I think we're going to see why Uncharted has been in development hell for so long. Um, so I'm good with that. Anyway, what do you think there, Tim? Um, I know you're not exactly pleased about the Daniel Craig news. What do you think about uh, the Uncharted news there, if anything at all? And that's my news. I would really like to see the uh, who the guy from Firefly, and he went on to do Castle. Oh, Nathan Fillion? Yeah, for a while, he was campaigning to be... Uh, to play Drake in a movie of the game. So after hearing that, hearing about that and seeing his campaign for it, it's hard for me to see anybody else playing that role. Um, so maybe it's a good thing. I mean, But also, I haven't played any of the Uncharted video games, but apparently what I've seen of them, actually, 
they're very cinematic, so it's kind of like you're playing a movie to begin with. So a movie might not really be worth it, because would it actually be able to live up to the cinematic experience that the video games produced? Well, I think that there are enough people out there who haven't seen, or I mean who haven't played the video game, who would see the movie and give it a shot that they're willing to take a chance on it, which is why they're doing it in the first place. But I agree, the movies, the, the, the video games do play like movies. Uh, same as Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed, uh, Assassin's Creed played like a movie. So it'll be interesting for sure to see how that one turns out, but I am not surprised that Uncharted is taking as long as it's going to take it. I don't think it's going to, especially as long as there is, as long as there is an, even a hint of a chance that there's another Indiana Jones movie, there's no way they're going to take that, that kind of a chance on Uncharted. So anyways, that's my news. All right. Well, I will wrap up the news with this piece of news via the hollywoodreporter.com napoleon dynamite director jared hess tackling shanghai noon sequel exclusive this here is written by boris kit that would be boris spelt b-o-r-y-s or maybe it's boris i'm not too sure jackie chan and owen wilson are in talks to reprise their roles for the long in the works third film in mgm's action comedy movie series MGM is jumping back into the saddle for a new Shanghai Noon sequel. Jared Hess, the Napoleon Dynamite director who released his long-delayed comedy Masterminds later this month, has signed on to direct Shanghai Dawn for MGM. Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson are in negotiations to reprise reprise their roles for the long in the works third film in the movie series. Details are being kept buried, but the story is by Miles Miller and Alfred Goh, who wrote 2000's Shanghai Noon and 2003's Shanghai Nights. Theodore Riley and Aaron Bushbaum wrote the script. The original was an East-meets-West buddy comedy about a Chinese man played by Chan, who is forced to team up with an outlaw, Wilson, to save a Chinese princess. The movie turned out to be a surprise hit and led to the London-set sequel. Spyglass Entertainment is producing Miller in Go, Will Executive Produce. And the article goes on from there. Matt, what do you think about this? I'm a big fan of Shanghai Noon. I haven't seen it in a while, so it's probably worth another uh, another watch. And I, try, I actually enjoyed Shanghai Nights quite a bit. It was a kind of a fun continuation of the misadventures of these two characters. And on top of the interesting story and follow-up as to what these characters are getting themselves into... I thought the action was really cool. I thought the set pieces were really cool. If I remember correctly, there was a big boss fight scene at the end that took place on, I think it was like the face of Big Bend or something like mm-hmm. that. It was just really yeah. cool looking. And I don't know, I, I just I like the idea of continuing this um, this movie series other than maybe the idea of Jackie Chan being a little older and Owen Wilson being a little older. And, you know, you run into... The possibility of the of the spark not being there. I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I don't think. I don't think there's a way to do this kind of a movie well. Shanghai Nights was cute, but it was not anywhere near as good as the first one. And I think that's why there hasn't been another one in like better part of a decade. And while I think the concept is an interesting idea, I think it's an idea that needs to stay as such, um, because. I don't think Jackie... I mean, Jackie Chan is still very much in shape and everything like that, but he is still getting on in years, and, and it's not... And he's not really incentivized 
to do all the ridiculously amazing things that he's always done. And it's hard. I mean, Homeboy's like 60-something years old. So, you know, I don't blame him for wanting to take it easy. And the same thing with Owen Wilson. It's There's just no way to make that kind of a character have aged well. And I'm not saying that he does that Owen Wilson doesn't have range or anything like that, but the character that he played doesn't really have range. And that's fine for what it was, but I don't I just don't think that it's a good idea. I really don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it's I don't think it'll be good at all. Well maybe we'll be able to get a better idea once we watch Skip Trace this week, see if Jackie Chan has his comedic chops still in place. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that is the end of the news and brings us to... 30 And this time on 3 Squared, we are going to be honoring Gene Wilder. Uh, and we are going to do our picks for our favorite Gene Wilder movies. Uh, Tim, would you like to start this time, or you shall I go ahead and start, sir? Oh, no, 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 no. Please, you. <laughs> fair, fair enough. All right. Well, I think um, when we were looking over uh, Gene Wilder's filmography, uh, there were a, a few easy ones, of course. Blazing Saddles. Uh, and, and what have you, and some of the other really easy ones um, that I personally wanted to stay away from, only not because they're not worth mentioning, but because, and, and not necessarily that because they're easy or low-hanging fruit, but it's just I wanted to kind of reach into, um, not necessarily obscure, but oftentimes overlooked um, movies that people don't always think of when they think of Gene Wilder. And one of the things that Gene Wilder did that was um, literally amazing virtually every time they, that, that he did it was he paired with Richard Pryor. And so I wanted to talk about his um, pairings with Richard Pryor. So my three picks are going to be the three movies that he starred in with Richard Pryor. But after much discussion, we've decided that we wanted to make an honorable mention for Gene Wilder, because there is a movie that we both thoroughly enjoy. It's not the best Gene Wilder movie, but it is still a fantastic one that is near and dear to our hearts. And so we felt that it deserved an honorable mention. Would you like to make that honorable mention, Tim? <laughs> the honorable mention for most beloved Gene Wilder movie goes to Haunted Honeymoon from 1986, yes. directed 1986. by Gene Wilder. That's right. And it also stars Gilda Radner and Dom DeLuise, and there are some just fantastic scenes. And it is something that was really cool because it managed to give a fresh spin on all of the classic monsters from the days of radio and early film. So um, that's why it's an honorable mention. But uh, But while there are great moments and it's a really neat story – it's 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 got some issues but uh it's still a good movie for us anyway so to the movies directly for me i'm going to do these in uh chronological order from, first up from 1976 the comedy thriller film 
about a murder on a Los Angeles to Chicago train journey is Silver Streak. And the movie, of course, stars Gene Wilder, Jill, uh, Jill Kleber, Richard Pryor, and Patrick McGugan. Um, and it stars a guy, uh, it stars Gene Wilder as book editor George Caldwell. And he's traveling from LA to Chicago for his sister's wedding on the train. And the train, of course, is called Silver Streak. And, um, he has a couple, a series, a little, uh, kind of some misadventures on the train, but there is a resulting murder on the train. And of course, now he's kind of involved in the murder and he comes across, um, uh, good lord. He, he comes across, uh, Richard Pryor and they inadvertently have to work together to get around this murder and solve the murder so that neither one of them ends up, uh, either dead or with the murder pinned on them. And thus, you know, the mystery happens. It's got some great scenes in there. Um, that, uh, especially if I remember correctly, this is the one where he, uh, has like shoe polish and stuff and he has to pretend, Gene Wilder has to pretend he's black. So <laughs> that scene alone is probably worth it. But, uh, yeah, it's a fantastic movie. Definitely amazing. And this was why everybody was looking for projects to put them back together again. And they did eventually get there in 1980. With Stir Crazy. It's a comedy. Now, this is just a straight comedy. It's directed by Sidney Poitier. And it's, again, stars Gene Wilde and Richard Pryor. These are, uh, friends who are down on their luck and they end up getting framed for a bank robbery and sent to prison for a 125 year sentence. Um, and so they're inside and they, of course, despite the clearly, uh, fish out of water, a buddy comedy thing that they've got going on. They actually end up making friends on the inside and have to kind of figure out how to get out, how to uh, exonerate themselves and all of the misadventures that that entails. And just to watch them dressed up as woodpeckers is pretty funny. And I mean, you just really get an idea of what you saw in Silver Streak was was burgeoning uh friendship off screen so it was good chemistry on screen but that was more because they were comedic heavyweights in their own in their own right what you see in stir crazy is the result of that burgeoning friendship from the other film that leads into stir crazy because now you can tell these are just two guys having fun together and they are definitely just absolutely insane together but still having a blast this movie is a whole lot of fun um and quite frankly i think it's the best of the three movies uh although there are some people who are going to argue that silver streak is better or maybe that the next movie is better um but the next movie and the last movie in my pick is the 1989 comedy film see no evil hear no evil where richard pryor and gene wilder um <clears throat> play a blind and a deaf guy respectively richard Pryor is blind gene wilder is deaf and they have to um take out three murderous thieves and while they're trying to again get out of being uh framed for the murder now they they are not friends in terms of um their characters in this particular they are they're strangers until they meet and have to go through this scenario together but it is still absolutely fantastic to watch them try and figure out how things 
how they're going to work together <laughs> because they don't know how to communicate for quite some time in the movie. And even after they kind of work that out, that in and of itself lends a lot of the comedic timing. And this is, of course, we're kind of starting to see health-wise the decline of Richard Pryor, which is a bummer. And we're also seeing... Uh, the tail end of Gene Wilder's career in film before he voluntarily stepped away. Um, and so it's, it's a really nice parting film to watch this career of Gene Wilder and even um, by way of association for Richard Pryor as well. Uh, just fantastic movies. It's a, it's a sweet movie. Um, not as strong in my opinion as Stir Crazy or Silver Streak, but again, um, that's for you as the viewer to decide. Uh, so in chronological order, again, my favorite Gene Wilder films. And I really think you get a, a true appreciation for outside of the classic films that he's known for, like Blazing Saddles. Um, I think you get to really see another side of him. So from 1976, we have Silver Streak. From 1980, Stir Crazy. And from 1989, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, all of which co-starred Richard Pryor. Go ahead, Tim. Bring us home on the three squares. Gene Wilder. This is a sad one, man. This really is. Unfortunately, I couldn't help myself from um, not throwing in the towel, but picking two very obvious movies. I mean, I grew up watching, like, Haunted Honeymoon, uh, even Hanky Panky, and just trying to think of the other one that he did with Gilda Radner. Was it The Woman in Red? I, I can't remember. The Lady in Red? Yes, I believe Woman in Red was also with Gilda Radner. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up watching those movies, and though they are flawed, especially like Hanky Panky and The Woman in Red, they're still entertaining. Why is that? It's because of their chemistry in all the other movies that Gene Wilder is in. It's because of his chemistry within his characterization. He's a very nuanced man. He can... He, 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 he chooses his words carefully, but yet he is always on the verge of something. In one movie, he is on the verge of hysterics. In, the, uh, in another movie, in the second movie I picked, he's on the verge of lunacy. And then for my first pick, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, I guess I could say he's always on the verge of... Sweetness, kindness. I mean, it just, he just seems like a sweet, kind man, but there's definitely like this hidden agenda, this kind of like under, under the skin ulterior motive, you know, like behind the curtain ulterior motive with him, like something that could equally be sinister or not. And you really are unsure about his portrayal of Willy Wonka, or actually just you're unsure about the character of Willy Wonka from beginning until close to the very end of the movie when you really find out that he's kind of sick and tired of these shitty kids. And he was really hoping that by, by holding this contest he would actually find somebody that was worthy of taking over his uh taking over his chocolate factory eventually everything about his portrayal his performance of Willy Wonka is wonderful you got his singing the song that he i'm trying to think of the song he sings when he is they're actually in the chocolate factory and all the kids are eating and drinking everything and he's kind of world of imagination yeah exactly pure imagination yeah pure imagination he's kind of strolling around and his subtext that you can see in his face and how he's carrying himself is that he knows this is a wonderful, grand place. I mean, kids love it. He loves it. But 
is he the only one that really appreciates it for what it is? Like, like, does anybody else understand exactly what the fuck this room holds? Other than just like, ooh, there's candy here. There's this. Just, just like nobody can really fathom something as wonderful as this. And to him, it, I mean, at least what I got from, him, especially from a young kid, that it, that there's kind of a sadness, an underlying sadness, uh, because of all that, which kind of makes the character of Charlie Bucket that much greater as well. Because you're really rooting for this kid, and when he doesn't quite believe he is this great kid until the very end you you know you kind of feel a little let down and Willy Wonka does kind of feel like a a bad man in a way so it's a wonderful nuanced performance especially right down to the end of pure imagination when he's singing the last couple words and he just takes a sip out of that tulip cup or whatever it is and he just bites into it and you know loud that loud crunch it's just absolutely wonderful The second film I chose, Willy Wonka was from 1971, this film, Young Frankenstein from 1974, one of my favorite Mel Brooks uh, films, though the movie would not have been made if it were not from Gene Wilder, because on the set of Blazing Saddles that came out actually that same year, but on the set of Blazing Saddles, when they broke for lunch or dinner or there's a break of some sort, instead of going to his trailer, Gene Wilder was just kind of hanging around on set and, you know, jotting some notes down in a notepad. And Mel Brooks walked over and was curious to see, you know, what his actor was up to. He looked down at the notepad and it was titled Young Frankenstein. And it, immediately that peaked Mel Brooks's interest. And so they started talking about that and... Uh, and right there on the spot, pretty much Gene Wilder pitched him the the whole idea of Young Frankenstein. So they both decided to write it together, and sure as hell, they did. And it was, of course, Mel Brooks's decision to make the movie in black and white. But it was, actually, Gene Wilder's idea to keep Mel Brooks out of his movie. Because I think we all know if Mel Brooks was going to make an appearance in the film, he probably would have made an appearance as the Gene Hackman blind man character. I can totally see Mel Brooks playing that, but luckily he didn't because Gene Hackman is great. But it would have been another Blazing Saddles type of, you know, feeling type of movie, like another Spaceballs. But this movie is, in my mind, highly regarded because it's not. The beauty of Young Frankenstein is that it is an ode to the James Whale movies from the early 30s. James Whale, as a lot of us know, he directed the original Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, and I believe he also did The Invisible Man as well. Gene Wilder wanted this movie to be in the same vein. Like, if if James Whale were alive right now and he took a look at the script, he'd make it the way that we are going to make it. And that's what they do. Yes, the movie isn't necessarily played straight, uh, especially the dialogue isn't played straight, but the characters, in a way, are played straight. And a lot of the dialogue is said straight, which is very, very funny. But for those of you who don't know, Young Frankenstein tells the story of Dr. Frankenstein's grandson, uh, played by Gene Wilder, who inherits the family castle and he does not want anything to do with the Frankenstein name so he actually goes by Frankenstein Dr. Friedrich Frankenstein so of course when he meets the townsfolk they all call him Frankenstein and it pisses him off and it's absolutely 
hilarious. His wife in the film is, of course, the great Madeline Kahn, who plays Elizabeth, and Terry Gar plays Inga. The, uh, is he, I guess she's German, Dutch, I can't really remember. She's the roll, roll, roll in the hair. The beautiful, busty young lass who catches Friedrich Frankenstein's eye. So Young Frankenstein is a wonderful film. Again, we would not have this movie without Gene Wilder's brilliant idea. And on top of it, we wouldn't have had the great putting on the Ritz sequence the great putting on the ritz dance number between frankenstein and peter boyles the monster as well because it was gene wilder who said he told mel brooks that because mel brooks didn't want it to be in the movie he felt that it detracted from the overall film but he agreed to shoot the scene because gene wilder felt passionate about it and it it turned out to be one of mel brooks's all-time favorite parts of the movie and it's absolutely brilliant Because, again, Gene Wilder plays it straight, but Peter Boyle's The Monster just happens to be fucking hilarious. And then my third and final pick uh, for my favorite Gene Wilder flick is from 1968, really his first starring feature, uh, starring role in a movie. It is uh, his portrayal of Leo Bloom in Mel Brooks's first theatrical film, The Producers. Really, the only other movie that that uh, Gene Wilder made before this one was his little cameo, small part role in uh, in Bonnie and Clyde. He did a load of stage work uh, leading up to the producers. In fact, according to the Guardian.com here, an article, Mel Brooks talks about why he cast Gene Wilder and what, what persuaded him to cast Gene Wilder. He says here, quote, I found Gene in a Bertolt Brecht play called Mother Courage. My wife, Anne Bancroft, was starring in it, and Gene and I got to be friends. He'd say, why do people laugh at me? I said, because you're a funny guy. He said, but I don't intend to be funny. And I said, that's what comedy is all about, having the audience discover it. So I said, I'm writing this script, and you're going to be Leo Bloom. He said, haha, that'll be the day. Then two years later, I went back to him, but that time he had become a star. But he read the script and cried. Gene was nuts. Crazy. I loved Gene because he was always an inch and a half away from hysteria. It was right there in his eyes. He was like a trapped animal. And in the producers, Max Bialystok is the thing that's trapping him. End quotes there. The producers, if you're not familiar with the Nathan Lane, Matthew Broderick reiteration or iteration, either the stage musical or the movie that came out, I think, in 2005, uh, the producers tells the tale of a crooked Broadway producer that goes by the name of Max Bialystok. In this movie, it's played wonderfully by uh, Zero Mostel. He partners up with an accountant. Gene Wilder's Leo Bloom, and they decide to fund a really shitty, they decide to produce a really shitty play uh, written by a former Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer uh, who goes by the name of Franz Lieken, and that musical is entitled Springtime for Hitler, and it's about uh, Hitler's uprising in Germany and how beautiful it was to be a Nazi at that time. And the entire show culminates in the in the in the in the show stopping number springtime for Hitler, which is absolutely amazing. They go off. They hire a, a flaming gay director. 
the the show is so over the top and they are sure they are absolutely sure that the mo- that the show that the Broadway show is going to absolutely flop and the reason why they want it to flop is because if the show is canceled after opening night before the curtain falls that means they get to claim all the insurance money which would be millions of dollars and they're going to retire to Copa or, or, or Bali or, you know, whatever the famous, you know, well-regarded tropical place was in the mid to late 60s. If you haven't seen it, please see it. If you haven't seen any of these movies, which I'm pretty sure all of us have seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, please, please, please watch it. Again, my three favorite Gene Wilder flicks are Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory from 1971, Young Frankenstein from 1974, and The Producers from 1968, which Gene Wilder was actually nominated for an Academy Award for. Right on, right on. Okay, well, next week we are going to be bringing back I'm the Only One Who Hated It. We actually haven't done it since April. That's a long time to go without this wonderful segment. So we're going to bring that one back. That's what the bonus segment will be for next week. And now, without further ado, it is time for... The Movies! Alright, and this week's movies are... Don't Breathe, and Bloodfather. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? How about Bloodfather? All right. Bloodfather, 2016 English-language French action thriller film directed by Jean, uh, Jean-Francois Richet, written by Peter Craig, based on his novel of the same name, and starring Mel Gibson, Aaron Moriarty, Diego Luna, Michael Parks, and William H. Macy. Um... All right, so basically what we have here is uh, the story of some, uh, well, kids who are doing bad things, and one of them happens to be related to uh, Mel Gibson, uh, who's been out of the picture for quite some time, but is trying to make up for lost time and ends up having to go on a shenanigans ensue, revenge-filled vendetta, kind of, (laughs) sort of, to help the kids get out of trouble um now this movie is a truly like okay i I don't remember if we covered it for the show or not but i know that we've seen it get the gringo did we did we cover get the gringo tim no that was right before i moved out here so we we did so all right so get the gringo is is, it's 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 late mel gibson uh post everything that you know was craptastic for him but this one really brings it home. Uh, he is just fully back into form in this film. It is a fantastic movie to watch. The, um, the action unfolds really, really well. William H. Macy is fantastic. Uh, both Aaron Moriarty and Diego Luna also are great in their roles. Now, the one thing I will say, though, that detracted from this film for me is that it's very formulaic. Now, in that regard, it doesn't mean that the movie's bad. It's just, um, and it's not necessarily predictable exactly. It's just, it kind of follows a set formula. So you're kind, you're, you're in the mood. You're not, you're not, you're, you're still in the moment. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. You're in the moment. 
watching this thing unfold. The downside, though, is that you you still are expecting things to turn out a certain way. Now, um, at the end of the day, 4.25 out of 5. I simply have to say this movie is fantastic. A complete return to form as uh, for, for acting uh, for Mel Gibson, and it's about damn time, in my own personal opinion. Um, but I just, the only thing that detracts from the film is that I just feel like it's a little too formulaic. It's a, it's a good story, um, it's good action, great thriller aspects to the film in terms of the background for all of the characters, because the background for all of the characters is not what lends itself to the action, it's what lends itself to the thriller. It's just the way that the, it's the way the action itself carries out that makes it the action, uh, that makes the action part of the film. So, uh, 4.25, out of five, fantastic movie. No spoiler section for me on this one. What do you got there, Tim? You know, I too thought it was pretty damn formulaic. I really liked Get the Gringo. I think I really liked Get the, Get the Gringo the most because it, it just came out of nowhere. Like, I remember hearing, oh, there's the straight-to-video VOD Mel Gibson movie. You know, at the time it was 2012, I think it came out. And so I checked it out. And I was blown away, not only because of the action, which was fantastic, and I thought better executed, the overall production value was incredibly impressive. I mean, it was obviously a lower-budget movie that was made for, like, the genre fans of the 80s, but it was entertaining. It kept me, not necessarily kept me guessing, but it kept me on the edge of the seat, looking forward to the next scene and seeing what they were going to do next, seeing what the character was going to do next. With this movie, I wasn't quite at the edge of my seat. In fact, I was leaning back kind of far. Did I enjoy the movie? I did enjoy the movie, but I I thought it it was very formulaic and maybe a little too obvious, a little too tropey. You can kind of guess what the what, you know what the characters are going to do next, what they're going to say, how the relationships are going to progress between the father and the daughter. I I'm not a big fan of the writing. I don't know if maybe it was because of the director. I think he's I think he's French. I could be incredibly wrong about that. But I don't I mean I, I don't know if maybe something got lost in the translation or maybe He is French. He is French? Yes. That I mean that could be it as well. I mean, if this was a French film, maybe it would have played off better, but it's not original enough for me to fully get behind it. Now I still enjoyed it. It's still better than your run of the mill low budget independent action flick. But the movie also could have been so much better. We've seen this type of movie before. We've seen these movies where people uh, escape to a motel room where they've been backstabbed or where they get fucked over, you know, type of thing. We've seen all that before. It just needed something a little, needed something fresh other than Mel Gibson. So I give this one 3.25 out of 5, almost a a 3.5. I just, again, just really wanted something more I, I don't have any spoilers for this one either all right very good well then moving into don't breathe 2016 american horror film directed by fede alvarez and it was written by alvarez and rodo Sayegis. uh it stars jane levy dylan minette daniel zavato and stephen lang and revolves around a trio of hoodlum criminals who are uh 
basically trying to rob a blind former Iraqi vet who got a bunch of money in a settlement where um, a rich family's daughter killed his daughter in a vehicular accident. Um, all right, so there's no sense in having a spoiler section for this film, and here's why. Because if you've seen the trailer and you watched the opening of the movie, you've pretty much had, like, uh, 80% of the movie spoiled for you. Now, that what that says to me is that uh, this movie is more about the journey than the destination. But the problem inherent in that is that you're really just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's kind of like when someone tells you, there's a great twist ending. You're just sitting there the whole time waiting for the twist to happen instead of enjoying the movie for the sake of its enjoyment and then being blown away by the twist. Um... That being said, this movie's journey is really cool. It's really, really cool. Um, I really enjoyed the aspects of the uh, protagonists of the movie, or the antagonists of the movie actually becoming the victims. But at the same time, the reason why they're the victims is because the protagonist is his own antagonist as well. So it's it's fun to watch everybody who has all of these deep, dark secrets coming into play and still trying to get around it with the idea being everybody has to be quiet because the blind guy has the lay of the land. It's his house, right? So, um, but even beyond that, um, there's only one other problem. And the problem is, is that... Where the movie succeeds is in its inventiveness. Uh, the the idea behind the story itself, Robin the Blind Guy. Then, of course, like just in the tr- just like you see in the in the trailer, there is a um, there they have a scene where it's in the dark, right? And you know, oh, now you can experience like like. A, and the thing is, is that it's not that is not the finale of the film, not by a long shot. So they didn't make it a gimmick. They made it an actual part of the film that made sense in the context that it was being told. So it was, and it was a really fun scene to watch. And I'm glad that they did it. And I'm glad that they didn't overplay that um, because it allowed for everybody to have that fun. Uh, but at the same time, they didn't rely on that. The downside to this style of play is that there's just no way that everybody can be this cool of a cucumber all the time because don't breathe, right? Because he'll hear you breathe. I just don't buy that these kids, regardless of how rough of an upbringing they've had and that it's Detroit and everything else, um, I, I just don't buy that they would have been able to keep their collective cool every single time they needed to for virtually the whole movie. It's almost never the fact that they breathe that causes a problem. It's, you know, they step on a floorboard or they kick something down or they fall. It's always something like that that triggers the audible effect. But at the same time, um, that still leads to the huge crescendo going up to the climax. Look, I remembered this time. (laughs) And it just, even for a horror movie, it falls into the trope of unbelievable, everybody can survive every kind of physical debilitating damage. Um, and that ruins a bit of the fun. You know what? Sometimes, why don't you just let somebody get the shit kicked out of them and then they just stay like alive, but with the shit kicked out of them. Um, I would like to actually see that work because then you could turn it into true survival horror. 
all that being said, three and a half out of five. Really fun movie. It's clearly not without its flaws, but really original, and I like what they did um, for the most part with the concept of blind man being terrorized, turning into the terror. What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. I, I'm going to ask you. So, okay, there there will be some spoiler stuff, but I, I'm just going to give my initial thought, and then I'll say spoilers. And uh, Matt, I, I just have a couple questions to ask you. Mainly, mainly the. The about the ending of the movie, because okay. that that's really what bugged me, and I really can't criticize it without mentioning that stuff. So, I thought this was a good movie. I think it's a good follow up to Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead remake from a couple years ago. Sure, and also worth noting that Sam Raimi produced this movie. He did, yeah, and so it's a very it's a novel idea. It's I like the progression of the things that happened. The movie doesn't ever really take itself seriously, which is one of its strong suits. Though my biggest problem is that, of course, like with any good horror movie like this, where you really don't want these characters to get the shit kicked out of them, or shot out of them, or beaten out of them. You really have to set up these characters at the beginning of the movie. And how they set up these characters, especially the girl, uh, I forget the character's name, but Jane Levy or Levy Jane plays Levy's her. character, yeah. Uh, Rocky. Yeah, Rocky, where, you know, she's this troubled girl who just wants to make life better for herself and for her uh, her sister, I guess. They want to move to they want to move from Detroit and go off to California. Though she's willing to rob homes <laughs> and breaks as many laws as possible in order to make this dream come true, which is again, it's a good idea and I thought it was a very interesting way how they go about showing these people robbing houses. One of these kids, his dad owns a security, a home security company. So he has like all these keys and these various ways of unlocking house doors so they can go in and, and rob the place and then make it look like it was a break-in. So there, there are many good, good, good ideas. And I'm so glad I didn't watch the trailer for this movie <laughs> because I made it a point not to watch any of the trailers because I, I couldn't help it. it. They popped up in movies I'd been going to see. Yeah, and see, that's what I heard. I, I, yeah, I, that's the only reason I watched this trailer at all. I, I saw it at least twice, um, maybe even three times over the course of the last month while I was at the movie theaters. You know, and it, I mean, there's no way you can close your eyes and go la 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 la, but you can still hear it. So yeah, no, exactly. So I'm just glad that I didn't. I, you know, not not a lot of this stuff was spoiled for me because this was one that I was really wanting to see. But I think one of my biggest bothers or irritations with this movie, other than the campy, the goofy characterizations with Jane Levy Levy's character and and her two other friends, mainly uh, I guess her boyfriend, who's kind of like your stereotypical thugly punk thugly. dude, yeah. <laughs> assholey punk dude, you know, yeah, good old Daniel Zavato. Yeah, 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 money. exactly like that. His name's Money. What's up, bitch? My <laughs> is that, name Money. Is that in every poster for this movie, and even like the TV spots, where in the TV spots they don't really spoil too much for you, luckily, they they keep saying, they, they say things like this, I'm quoting uh, two, I guess, reviewers' reviews here, little segments of them, quote, one of the most relentless horror movies in recent memory, end quote, written by Jacob Hall, Quote, a masterful combination of suspense and violence that'll have you squirming in your seat and enjoying every minute of it. End quote, said Peter Travers. I think it says Peter Tra Peter something. I don't I can't read it. Then I read another one from another uh, reviewer who said that this is Fede, uh, Fede Alvarez's most 
not disgusting, but most like boldest movie ever made. Boldest? What the fuck are you talking about? You're making in this movie sound like it's gory as hell. There's blood all over the place. Miles, uh, spoiler alert. There's not a whole lot of blood other than the occasional person gets stabbed or shot or whatever, but it's not like gratuitous blood and gratuitous violence. And that really kind of bugged me because that was kind of like the buildup I had going into this movie that it was going to be kind of a gore fest. And in some way it was going to top Evil Dead in the, uh, you know, in, in that in, in that regard. But Evil Dead is by far one of the bloodiest movies um, I've seen in quite a while, and this movie didn't even come close to touching the amount of terror, blood, gore that the Evil Dead remake had. Now, is that a bad thing? No, 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 not at all. But it felt like the, uh, this movie could have used a little bit more of it to really kind of drive it home. But what the movie does do, it's it's good, it's interesting, it's fun, the suspense is definitely there, but once the motives, once you kind of find out what's going on, because again, it's supposed to be this great twist, you can't help but feel a little a little let down. So I give this, before spoilers, uh, again, a 3.75 out of 5. I do recommend it. Uh, the movie's been making Sony... A shit ton of money. I mean, so far on a $9.9 million budget, it's already grossed 53, 55, 56 million bucks. $63.3 million. Or $63.3 million. So it's been <laughs> doing pretty well. But as of right now, I sit on 3.75 out of 5. Nice. And now we're going into spoilers. So look in the description and, well, actually. Well, this is it. This is yeah, the last this is movie. It. So <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for listening. <laughs> So you mentioned that at the beginning of the movie, you kind of see you see what's going to happen to the girl eventually. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, what the one thing that the movie does really well, or one of the, the the many things that the movie does really well, is that that didn't bother me as much because I really thought that maybe that was a trick in some way, maybe or or maybe maybe it wasn't her. You know, I thought maybe it could have been something else. Maybe maybe another character is going to be introduced, or she's going to trick him in some way. But when she escapes the house finally, you think she would... Again, this is after she's gone through, like, nearly raped by a turkey baster full of this guy's God, I will never look at that again. Oh, my God, I will never look at a turkey baster the same way. And the thing is, is that I had some friends of mine back in high school, and they would (laughs) joke about being lesbians and the fun that they would have with a turkey baster. (laughs) And of course, back then, I'm just laughing because it was funny, right? You know, you, and now after that, I will never think of that the same way again. That's just wow. You know, and wow. like, so this girl goes through this horrible stuff. I mean, all like her and the her and the other guy that likes her, you know, he, they're getting stabbed, they're getting punched, they're getting knocked out. She's almost getting raped again by a turkey baster uh, full of blind man sperm. And yet she still falls into the same horror movie tropes when she escapes she does that stupid stop and looks around she yes. she stops and waits and then she goes to the car like she, why the fuck are you running to the car i mean just keep going she yeah exactly I mean, she goes to the car she <laughs> the, the dog you know the dog appears and she takes care of the dog which was all good but then she like slowly falls out of the car 
lays there a while, starts crying, and then she gets up and she, you know, in in like this entire time, she thinks that the that the old man, who you know, obviously nobody is living on that fucking street. Like, nobody is around. Oh, yeah, that was what I'm thinking the whole time. I'm totally with you. I was thinking the whole time, I'm like, come on, you know there's nobody around. That's the whole point of the damn movie. Yeah. Is that he is literally the last man standing. He's the only one on the block. So what the fuck are you spending time in the car? Why wouldn't you – that, again, why would you even stop anywhere near there? Just keep fucking going. And it was already set up at the beginning of the movie that he goes outside. You know, he goes outside to, you know, do whatever with his dog. So. Uh, you know, it's just that shit right there annoyed the living fuck out of me. And to me, that was my biggest issue. And then I just... Oh, no. The biggest issue for... I'm sorry. I'll I, I cut you off. I apologize. Go, go ahead. Oh, no. No, no. Then I was just going to say, and then by the time it gets to the ending where, you know, where, you know, you think she kills him or whatever, I just really don't care. Or I didn't care, I guess. But what were you going to say? I would have even... And, and again, I would have even been moderately okay with that like okay fine we've gone through the whole is he dead is he dead is he dead is he dead thing like okay and great now we now she walks off and then he and then you find out that he survived right you know whole thing and not like i guess that they were trying to set up a sequel necessarily but at the same time how the fuck could he have survived there's just, I mean, and moreover, not only did he survive, but he was somehow able to still get back up while being shot and make sure that there was no other physical evidence of the girl he kidnaps. <laughs> you mean the entire room that, yeah. that wasn't really so blocked like, off by too much? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you gotta be kidding me. This is the, it's just, yeah, I, the ending really kind of, pissed me off but no more than when you know alex has survived supposedly being stabbed blind man supposedly survived being shot chained up choked beat down thrown down the stairs whatever and alex survives six different times only to be shot and dies anyway and then she survives six different times only to be almost attacked in the car and the whole time in the car it's like why are you in the car because the you don't think he can't hear that fucking dog i mean Oh, God. Yeah, so... But again, it's just... it, it It's like it fell into horror tropeville in the last ten minutes, which is really disappointing. But not enough to say that it's a bad movie. I just... I don't know. It's almost like they were afraid... It's, it's almost like he was gun-shy after Evil Dead. Because Evil Dead's ending was... Very unique, even though for it being a remake and stuff, it was still very unique. And I think he was afraid of doing it again. I think he was gun shy. And I think he f- went to horror tropeville because it was more reliable. You know, I think it also would have been better if if we saw the man attempt to hide everything. It, like, like show like how he went about leading the police or investigators astray by either pulling the sad old man card you know the the victimized old man yeah, card. Yeah, because we knew he had gotten rid of the body of the girl, so that was that wasn't the problem. The other problem would have been all the, the brain the matter room. and stuff. Yeah, the was... pillow room. Yeah, all of the extra stuff that would have been like, why is there dead body material here? Um, why is why is money's dead body over here the way it is wrapped in a plastic bag? And then homeboy, you know, so. That was, yes, I agree. They needed to figure out a way to make that plausible. Not to mention, 
I get that he's a resourceful guy. I get that despite him being blind, he's ingen- he's got he's full of ingenuity. He's been able to create his little house of horrors, whatever. Fine. But how the fuck did he kidnap that girl? You know that needed to be something that was explained and not left in the mysteries of La La Land. Um, because that's the kind of thing that's supposed to make the girl freaked out that, oh my God, he could still come and find me. How? How is he going to come to fucking California and find you and your little sister? Um, you know, because apparently he's able to go and kidnap women. That, that's his special, that's his special superpower. So, yeah. It's still a good movie though. I can't, I can't <laughs> deny that it's still a good movie. It's, it's clearly not without its flaws, but it's definitely worth watching. And I'm glad that uh, Fede Alvarez bounced back from the disappointing turnout of Evil Dead overall. Even though I thoroughly enjoyed it, I thought it was a fantastic movie. Evil Dead? I thought I just I rewatched it this I past just, week. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I just um, and I know we covered it back when it came out, but um, I uh, yeah, I was just really disappointed it didn't do better. So I'm glad he has bounced back on that. We need some more. We need some more people like James Wan and Fede Alvarez. New blood, as it were. Although more James blood. Wan isn't, he, although James Wan isn't exactly new blood anymore since Saw's been out for like, you know, 12 years, but whatever. Anyway, so yeah, cool. <laughs> so, do we have anything further to add? We Don't Breathe? No, no, I, I'm good. Three, 3.75. Right. You know, we Very both, cool. Yeah, yeah cool. so both of the movies, that's nice because both the movies averaged uh, 3.75 this week, so... Yay, yay. Um, okay, so next week's movies are Hell or High Water, which is in the theaters, and then Skip Trace, which is on VOD. And that brings us to the Spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right, well, the music you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. We had no Twitter followers or email to mention this week, so please do send that to us. And and, of course, you can always follow me. This is Matt on Twitter, at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter, if that's your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always follow us on Stitcher Radio and or favorite us. Wait, follow us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Stephen Lang, I get to say this. I love scenes that are just emotional and give and take. By the same token, action sequences are great to do. They have their own unique demands and requirements. So I take it as it, as it comes, and hopefully you can get a good balance of all that stuff. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>